Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 8th of May, 2023, and this is episode 299. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Steve Hammond about his research and interest into the Queen Westminster Rifles during the Great War. Steve spoke to me from his home in Hertfordshire. Hi Steve, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and particularly the Queen Queen Westminster Rifles, not the Queen Victoria Rifles, the Queen Westminster Rifles? Well, thanks for asking me, Tom. Yeah, well, I live near Leverstock Green in Hemel Hempstead, Hertfordshire, um, hearts born and bred. My earliest memory, really, war-wise, was being allowed to look at the Great War volumes by H.W. Wilson with my brother. I'm sure a lot of people had that when they were young. Uh, they used to be locked away by my dad, but he'd get them out on a weekend if we promised not to colour them in or ruin them or anything like that. So that was our first sort of interest in it. But also our great granddad, Henry Hammond, he served in the Royal Engineers, served out in Egypt and Salonica. And we found out more recently that our great uncle, Archie William French, was actually killed in action on the 22nd of September 1918 with the 8th East Surreys buried in Peron. We managed to go and see him a good few years back. Um, we've also been touring the battlefields for over 20 years now with a good group of lads. And this um, sort of helped trigger my interest in the Westminsters, really. I managed to purchase a postcard, nice photograph on the front of some men sitting outside a farm building. It's actually posted in Leverstock Green in 1914, in August 1914. So I started to research and I found out the guy that sent the card was actually Arthur Leonard Marsh, a rifleman. Turned out he was killed in action on the 1st of July, 1916 at Gomacourt. So this started off the bug, really. And um, I was was finding more postcards at military affairs, postcard fairs, searching on eBay. And I managed to pick up a few more actually sent by Marsh. And they had like group photos on the front. None of them identified. So this made me more determined to try and identify as many as possible, really, and put names to the faces. Um, and I was lucky enough to meet two local ladies, uh, Mary Cole and Jill Ray. And their mums, as young girls, lived in the Leather Bottle pub in Leverstock Green. And these two young girls, Olive and Sybil, had autograph books. And they used to get the men of the Westminster to sign these autograph books. And these ladies let me go and visit them and photograph the books. So I started to research all the names of the men that had signed the books as well. Got plenty out of that. And then I met another guy called Nick Barmer, and his great uncle was John Barton Baber. He was a second lieutenant in the Westminsters when they left Leverstock Green to go to France. And he was a keen photographer. And when they got to France, he started taking photographs of the men in um, Saint-Omer first. And eventually, when they ended up at Hoopline, he took loads of photos up at Hoopline, and they made a little presentation album out of this. And Nick Barmer showed me the album and most of the men were named in it. So that was a fantastic source for me. So I was able to bring that back and identify or start identifying the photos that I was picking up. And that sort of snowballed from there, really, Tom. 
But let's let's go back in time and talk about the origins of their regiments uh, in the volunteer uh, period, in the Victorian period, when they were a volunteer unit, and um, and their conversion into the TF in 1908. Ah, yeah. So we can go back to 1779 to start with, on the formation of the Westminster Light Horse, and then 1787 for the Royal Westminster Volunteers. And also during that time, 1795, there was um, an artillery detachment attached to the Westminster Light Horse and two six-pounder guns were given by King George III as well. So them guns come into play a bit later on. That's why I mentioned those. Um, I'll tell you now, actually, they're actually later on placed on the steps outside HQ at Buckingham Gate. If anyone ever goes to Buckingham Gate, number 58, you go up the steps and look on the top, the stone on the top, you see two grooves cut each side, and that's the grooves these two guns used to sit in. But I'm digressing a bit there. Um, these units were actually disbanded in 1814, but reorganised in 1859 on the formation of the Rifle Volunteers under the threat of the French invasion. So the Westminsters initially, they're formed as the 22nd Middlesex Rifle Volunteers, up until 1880, that is. And then they become the 13th Middlesex Rifle Volunteers, which they carry through up until 1908. Now, there was 16 companies originally, Tom, um, geographical, all around London. So you had A, B, C and D companies in Pimlico. You had E and F in St. John's. G was St. Mark's. H, St. James's. I and K, St. Martin's. L was Shawbreds. M was St. Clement Danes. O, the Royal Welsh. R, Greater Westminster, S, the Mounted Infantry, and T, the Cyclists. And these based at 106 Buckingham Palace Road. And they used to drill in the uh, Westminster Abbey Hall, but they, they eventually lost that. So they had to source a new, a new home for themselves, really. And that came down to Colonel Sir Charles Howard Vincent, who managed to secure a 99-year lease from the Duke of Westminster in 1886. They had a, a massive fundraising drive um, from the men, local businesses, and managed to raise a good bit of money for the new headquarters that were built at 58 Buckingham Gate. The total costs ended up at 10000 so it escalated from the initial price, I'm sure, like most things now. Uh, but they managed to raise 3700 of that through donations. And from this, they got and the building at the front. They got a nice officer's mess, sergeant's mess. Uh, rifleman's recreation room and in the basement they had a billiard room and then obviously the big drill hall out the back and the drill hall was excellent for fundraising socials they used to do a lot of that concerts and they also in the basement they had an indoor mini range for morris tube shoots um when the when the front building was actually complete the, the drill hall at the back opened first but when the front building was finished it was opened on the 11th of june 1887 by the duchess of westminster and the, the regiment was actually inspected at Buckingham Palace in the gardens by the Kaiser on July the 10th, 1891. I think they asked two or three other regiments if they could parade at short notice for the Kaiser, but they couldn't. So Westminster's being a local one, they were asked and they managed to parade over a thousand men at short notice. Um, and being part of the Grey Brigade, along with um, 13th, 14th, 15th and 28th Londons, um, obviously, they're all paraded in the grey, the Westminsters with their scarlet facings. But the, the Kaiser actually liked it so much, that's where he's rumoured to have chosen the field grey for his army's uniforms. 
And as a thank you, he commissioned a painting of himself, a, a nice big oil painting that hung at HQ for a, while, a long while in the officer's mess before the building was given, away, given over. And then it was moved to Davis Street. And then more recently, when Davis Street was lost, I think it now hangs at the Cavalry and Guards Club. Um, I believe it hangs there now. Apparently, it turned to the wall at Buckingham Gate during the war. Uh, some say it was just put in the basement out of sight, but I'm not sure on that one. But they were, they were a very proud regiment, quite proud of their shooting prowess. And they used to have an annual shoot against the 7th Regiment of New York with a Howard Vincent shield, home and home one year, away the next. I don't know when that finished, but um, that went on for quite a while. And the regiment had a very good record in shooting competitions. So that's a sort of brief outline of the, the early days for them, Tom. I'm just going to digress and talk about the drill hall in Buckingham Gate. So Buckingham Gate, for those who don't know, is, is a road off Victoria Street, very near Buckingham Palace in Westminster. And at 58, you can still see the um, front portal and the porch um, you know, drilled out with a with a portcullis um, symbol, which was their sort of logo, their cat badge. Is there still That's much of that building right. left? The whole building is still there. It's actually owned by the Sassoon Academy now. The Met Police had it before for a good few years. But you can see someone's actually chiselled away the, the stonework on the front to try and lose the, the Queen's Westminster volunteers. But you can still just make it out. It is all still there. And the, obviously the stone at the top of the steps that these two six-pounders used to sit in. Ooh. Oh, but So let's move down to 1908. Now, the unit um, ceases to be a volunteer uh, unit and joins the territorial force. Can you tell us about the um, transition to this new unit and what exactly was the territorial force and what was its purpose? Uh, the, well, 1908, we had the Haldane reforms, so the territorial forces formed. Um, it's, it's the merger of the volunteer force and the yeomanry, and they're, they're assigned home defence to relieve um, regulars to go and serve abroad. So on the out on the outbreak of war, um, men of the Westminsters and all the territorials, if they wanted to serve abroad, they'd have to sign to volunteer to go abroad. So in 08, when the Westminsters uh, formed the 16th County of London, the the 16 companies that we mentioned before become eight companies. Um, a to H, uh, geographical again still, but they change around a bit. So A becomes Shawbreds, which is quite an important company. B is Pimlico, C is Pimlico and the Royal Welsh, D Pimlico, E is St John's and Broadwoods, F is St Martin's, G St Margaret's and St James's, and H is Clement Dane and Greater Westminster. Now, Shawbreds, he was determined to be the best company. He was a very keen soldier himself, Shawbred. He wanted his company to be the best. He encouraged people that worked at his company. He had his own company in Tottenham Court Road. It was a big department store at the time. So he encouraged all his employees to sign up. He paid for all their uniforms, paid for their equipment, and they were paid to have time off to go shooting on the range as well. And they did actually become the best shooting company in the country at one time for the rifle volunteers. I think they were the best shooting company in the Westminster's 13 years out of 14 on a stretch but uh, I always used to feel sorry for the territorials because things you read you know the part-time soldiers they're cruelly ridiculed by men uh, Edgar Loveland the log that I've got he writes that they were despised I and mean, it's quite a strong word you know we've read Saturday Night Soldiers and Haldane's Horse but they they were very much appreciated especially when they got there 
I've got a couple of bits I could read, Tom, if that's okay. And there's one bit by a guy called Edward Rowe from the First East Lanx in his book, Diary of an Old Contemptible. Yeah, I don't know if he's getting a bit confused with Westminster's and London Rifle Brigade because they were actually in two two divisions, different divisions when they were out there. But I'm sure it's the same for the territorials that he met. But he writes, the London Rifle Brigade, territorials, has arrived from home and is attached to our brigade. My battalion has the Queen's Westminster's attached to us. We have got to initiate them into the art of trench warfare. They soon resigned themselves to the hardships of trench or canal warfare. There are a fine lot of fellas, well-educated. Some can speak three or four languages, all can speak French, and they have a superior bearing. Why send the others in to die with people who only possess army thirds, and most none at all? I do not mean that they should not die or take equal risks, but they could be better employed and would be of more benefit to the state were they trained and employed as officers. But also in the, the Regimental History by Henriquez, there's a, a small bit where Lord French writes about the territorials, and he said, seven or eight years' experience as territorials operated to the greatest advantage when these territorial battalions arrived in the theatre of war and commenced their final preparations to fill the gaps in our line, through which, as I've shown, the Germans must have penetrated had the territorial army not exist to step into the breach. The Queen's Westminsters and the 8th Royal Scots only embarked on the 1st and 4th of November, respectively, yet they can do so good that then they were able to be sent to the front immediately after the HAC. So that's that's good praise indeed for the territorial men, I think, Tom. Well, let's let's have a look at who they were, because you've, you've talked about them being, I suppose, maybe quite posh, um, from certainly from your first quote. So what was their sort of background in terms of um, social status, class, occupational and geographical origins? Who were they in 1914? They, they do live near most of them. You know, they are one of the so-called class battalions, as we know, along with the likes of the, the 5th, 14th, the 15th and the 28th Londons all paying a guinea to join, one pound and one shilling. Um, most of the companies, I would say, the men live local, office workers, clerks. The majority of the records I find state that they're a clerk, um, professional men. Um, the one exception really would be A Company, which is Shawbreds, because he had his own firm, the company in Tottenham Court Road. He um, would have men coming from all over the country to work for him, and he would sign them up into his own A company and um, put them up in digs in Gower Street. Every every record I've found that survives of these men working for Shawbread, they're living in Gower Street and they're listed as a draper on the records that survive. Um, the monthly state that I've got, the last one I've got before the start of the war, is September 1913, and numbers were diminishing. You know, it was a, a dwindling battalion at the time. So they only had 586 enlisted men. And when it came to mobilisation for war, they had 511. So these these 511 actually marched from Westminster to Hemel Hempstead on the 16th of August 1914, um, bivouacked overnight at Edgware and arrived at Leverstock Green in Hemel Hempstead on the 17th of August. Um, a further 381 recruits came by train on the 27th of August. They got the train into Boxmoor down at the bottom of Hemel and marched up the hill to Leverstock Green. And these were billeted on all the local farms around where I live, less than a mile from where I live. That's why I got so interested in them. 
and they they trained there, heavy training, hard training, all the way through to the first of November when they left for France. So there was, I think, it's eight hundred and ninety-two men came arrived in Hemel, officers and men, and of these, eight hundred and seventy signed up to go to France. So they sailed on the first of November. They marched from Hemel to Watford, got the train at Watford to Southampton. And boarded the SS Maiden at Southampton to go to France on the 1st of November. Uh, the Liverpool Scottish were on the boat with them as well. And these men became known as the Maideners. And every year from that year onwards, in November, they used to celebrate with the Maiden dinner. And that carried on up until early 70s, I believe. And so that segues neatly into my next question is, well, what did, what do they get up to in France? Can you tell us about their operational um, service history uh, during the four years of conflict? Well, during the war, uh, famous saying there, <laughs> um, they, they land in France on the 3rd of November, 14, and they become attached to the 18th Infantry Brigade, 6th Division. Um, the soldiers with them, they were with the East Yorks, the West Yorks, the Knots and Derbys and the Durhams. And they, they sort of quickly take the Westminsters under their wing. Uh, they first come under fire near Bois-Grenier um, on November the 16th and 17th. Three of the companies are in the line, one after the other. So a few of them actually become old contemptibles. And they do adapt quickly and very well to the trench conditions. I'm sure you know, Tom, they take part in the Christmas truce. That's near Wei Makar. But Christmas truce, all, you know, peaceful and that. There was five men of the Westminster's actually shot on Christmas Eve. One of them, Leonard Tate, I think his name was, he, he dies instantly. Um, the other four that were wounded, one of them was a sergeant, Sergeant Martin Samuel Rogers. He, he takes three weeks to die. He dies on the 15th of January. The other three survived their wounds. It's actually an interesting truce for them as well, because three of the Westminsters are taken prisoner of war. There's three guys called Herbert Good, Arthur Lancelot Pierce, and Noel Bing. They they drink a bit too much and wander off into the German trenches in the front line. And the British officers ask for these men to be returned. And the Germans obviously say, no, they can't. They've seen our machine gun positions, so we can't let you have them back. But what we can do, we can promise they'll go to a civilian prison and they'll be treated treated as civilian prisoners rather than prisoners of war. So this was accepted. And um, then they find out eventually these guys are actually sent to Wittenberg, which was an awful prison camp. An American did a, an inspection there and he said it was the worst prison camp he actually ever inspected. They had a, a terrible outbreak of typhus there so bad that the Germans just shut the gates and left them to it. There is in that in that report actually by the American, he said that one German doctor walked into the camp wearing a big gown, gloves, mask, a bit like COVID really, but he walked in, took a look around and said no and walked out. And he was actually given the Iron Cross for his bravery. So it was left to all the men in the camp to sort themselves out and help each other. And two of the Westminsters, Good and Bing, are actually awarded the MSM for their work in this typhus epidemic. Pierce wasn't. I, I actually spoke to a family member of Pierce, and he said that Pierce was actually attacked. The guard dogs were set on him in the camp, which they used to do quite often. So he was very lucky to survive. Post Christmas truce, uh, they they move up to um, Hoop Line on Boxing Day, which, according to Edgar Loveland, especially was his fav most favourite place in the whole war. They loved the billets, they loved the people. They, they stayed there until the end of May. 
1915 and moved down to the deep salient, stayed down there by the canal banks. Uh, Christmas 15, a bit different to Christmas 14, but for the Westminsters, they were around Popperinger and they helped create the chapel in Tock H, uh, very instrumental in that, and close bonds were formed as well with Tubby Clayton, which continued for many years. And then we moved to 1916, where they joined the 56th Div in February. Obviously, the preparation coming up for Gomacor. So you, you've got Gomacor for the start of the Battle of the Somme, diversionary, and post-Gomacor, they're, they're involved at Combles, where they lose heavily again. They actually suffered that year 459 men killed in France. Um, 1917, we've got Arras back to Ypres and Combray later in the year. 226 men killed in France, 80 killed in Belgium. And 1918, Gavrel, that's a, a very important one in the Westminster's history, the famous stand at Towie Post. They actually formed um, a union between Westminster and the, the town of Gavrel for, you know, Westminster raised funds. There's a nice plaque on the church if you go to Gavrel inside the church. And obviously Arras, the Battle of the Scarp, they're involved in the Canal du Nord and the advance to victory. And in 1918, they lose 231 men in France and 18 in Belgium. So, you know, the casualties are mounting. So that brings me neatly onto my next question. What was the impact of the war on the battalion in terms of casualties, how it sort of changed the rank and file and the character of the unit? Well, the total war casualties for the battalion, remember, you know, the 870 that initially left for France from Leverstock Green, the total casualties for the 1st Battalion, this is, was 1,217 killed in action or died of wounds. So of, of the maideners, as they were called, who left Leverstock Green, the 870 that left, the 29 officers, 841 other ranks, nine officers died, 306 of the other ranks were commissioned, you know, we're going back to them being a class regiment, so they were used as officers, as young Rowe said in his letter. Um, 134 were killed in action or died of wounds, and 180 served through either on the Western Front or on home service, with 11 being taken prisoner of war, and a further 210 were discharged as unfit or termination of engagement. But a lot of those that came out termination of engagement actually went into, they, you know, they were commissioned and went into other regiments. I haven't got details for all of those. As far as reinforcements goes, Tom, before Gomacor, they were pretty badly depleted anyway, and they were reinforced by men reinforced, sorry, by men from the second second Londons. These are battle-hardened men. These had been to Gallipoli, and they were very well accepted by the men of the Westminsters, and they were keen, and they they took the new cap badge straight away. Actually, the second second Londons. That's one thing that's written about by the men of the Westminsters. Uh, the reinforcements initially mainly came from the 3rd Battalion, which was training at home, being trained at Richmond Park, being trained by a lot a lot of the men who returned, the maideners that returned home. Some came out to of E, termination of engagement, and helped to train the men at Richmond Park. And there, there was one bit that Edgar Loveland wrote about, actually, was after Gomacor, you know, they are very low on numbers. So they had an emergency reinforcement by Bantams, and he writes of his friend, I think his name was Exelby, walking in. Exelby was six foot and above, like a lot of the Westminsters West were. And he's marching in with these little bantams behind him. 
and he, he, he said it was the strangest of sights, but when they got into trenches, they had to put boxes on the fire step because the trenches were suited to the Westminsters, and they had to put boxes in for these poor Bantam fellas. But by, I've certainly found from the medal rolls anyway, from late 1917, early 18, they start to get re reinforced by men from the 7th and 8th Londons, the 10th Londons, 17th Londons, a lot from the King's Royal Rifle Corps, and then you get middle sets in there as well. And then it turns into a spattering of reinforcements from many different, uh, it's obviously changing the battalion as a whole, these reinforcements by the war's end. And that ne brings us neatly onto my penultimate question. What happens to the unit after the war? Uh, Post-war, well, the, the battalion move eventually, um, after the armistice, they move up to a place called Genley near Mons, and they get up there on the 29th of November and they stay there until March 1919 with the strength slowly being reduced, you know, men going home every day. Christmas 18, totally different again from Christmas 14. They actually held a party in Genley near Mons um, for all the children of the town. And this was arranged by Major Grizel and Captain Whitby. Um, big party for all the kids. They even had a Santa there for them. Um, the men after that are gradually reduced to a card of strength of only 40 men under Lieutenant Colonel Savile. And they, they returned to London on the 2nd of June 1919 and marched into Buckingham Gate with uh, a lot of their comrades there with a rousing reception for them. Um, 1921 is when the battalion merges with the 15th London, 31st of December 1921. There was a lot of bad feeling over that. Um, one, they didn't want to merge anyway, and it was the same for the 15th, you know, the civil service rifles, uh, especially with the civil service rifles, actually, because the new regiment was called the Queen's Westminster Civil Service Rifles. And the civil service was saying, well, we're the 15th, they're the 16th, so shouldn't it be the civil service Queen's Westminster rifles? But, you know, they argued over that. It wasn't changed. But the men were actually still wearing their own cap badges with the new shoulder tiles. There was new shoulder tiles brought out which had a portcullis one side for them and the Prince of Wales feathers the other, but they were still wearing their own cap badges. And the new cap badge wasn't actually approved until March 1925. So that's about three and a half years before they could agree on a new cap badge. You know, I think then now, you know, it's all come down now to F Company of the 7th Rifles. So that's where we are now. So where can people learn more about your work and the Queen's Westminster Rifles? Well, there's, there's two good books out there um, written by men of the Westminsters, which I, I loved when I first found them. One's Twice in a Lifetime by Marmaduke Leslie Walkington, great name. And the other is A Signaler's War by Sergeant Bernard Brooks. I used them two a lot when I first started researching the men of the Westminsters. Um, I've, I've started putting a book together. I'm nearly finished that, so I'm going to be looking for a publisher, and that's mainly based on Edgar Loveland's log and adding a load of photographs and named photographs to it. So that's to come. And um, Mainly, Tom, I, I put stuff out on Twitter as Wilf Steve, Steve Hammond, just on Twitter. Uh, uh, there's a lot of photos that I could put on there, actually, that relate to this little podcast we've done. So if people are interested, if, if you like, Tom, I can put them on there and it can relate to that. Please do. Steve, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. 
The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.